Welcome to the Legends of Oral Regeneration by the Osteology Foundation. One host, one guest, and a whole bunch of experience and expertise. Meet the people behind the names and get unique insights. So, ladies and gentlemen, uh, welcome on this new podcast. And uh, my name is Franck Renoir. And today I have the great pleasure of animating this uh, discussion, meeting with a legend of tissue regeneration. I think about Professor Friedrich Neukamp. Friedrich Neukamp was professor and head of the maxillofacial surgery department at the University of Ellingen in Germany. He has been a member of the board, but also president of several international associations such as EO, European Association for Integration, but he has also been a founding member of the Osteology Foundation. I had the pleasure of working with Professor Neukam in multiple occasions, and I must confess that I've always been impressed by Fritz Neukam's overall vision on the topic discussed. But I know that if I continue in compliments, my interlocutor and friend, will not appreciate too much then. I pass the floor, as we say, to him, Fritz. Can you introduce yourself to start, please? Frank, you know, it's always difficult to introduce yourself. And you know, I don't like that very much. But anyhow, I will give some aspects of my, my life career. Well, as you mentioned, I have been trained in uh, the University of Hanover. And in those days, um, I was able to present my thesis. And uh, the thesis, the topic of the thesis was experimental and clinical investigations in grafting procedures in combination with osseous implant and bone graft material. And uh, this topic, uh, I followed, let's say, during my whole professional life. And I'm a little bit proud that I was, uh, was given honorary professor of Moscow State University in 2001. And I got the honorary doctorate of the University of Athens. And maybe that's, that's enough, Frank. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But uh, uh, Fritz, you are you are one of the pioneer of the modern implantology, and uh, our our colleague, uh, the new generation, must understand that uh, uh, before implant was not so safe, and before the Brandenburg uh, works, uh, implantology was uh, uh, with blades, periosteal implants, and that was uh, most of the time a nightmare for a patient. And how did, did you, you get into the world of implant uh, that is or both close, but also quite distant from your original specialty? Because in the 80s, um, the implant was no so spread in, in the uh, scientific community. Well, you know, um, as you mentioned, there had been problems with implants in those days, let's say, in the days before the 80s of the last century. Uh, during my training, um, a very important aspect of my training was scientific work. So in the beginning of the 80s, I had the opportunity uh, to, to visit the Toronto Osseo Integration Conference in 2000, uh, in uh, 1982. And that was a very interesting and a, a, a very breakthrough because before the 80s, there had been only very few scientific based research in that field. It was more or less, let's say, doing without scientific background. And that was mm -hmm. the reason why implants were not accepted. We have to consider that in the 50s already, Barnemark discovered the principle of osseointegration. And that was a process uh, by which 
titanium implants were inserted into the body and it was accepted and becomes an integrated part of the bone. This, I think this was a real pioneering background work for implant treatment uh, for the next years. And the very important aspect already in the 70s, the Branemark group was the first group world, worldwide that published very successful clinical long-term results with implants in their trophic lower jaw. And then in the 80s, George Zarp and his research team in Toronto, they were able to, to obtain a grant from the Ontario Ministry of Health to carry out a five-year replication study on patients in Canada, in the atrophic mandible. This clinical study was the first study outside Sweden to replicate and verify the clinical results that were originally already obtained by the Branemarkin. That was a breakthrough because now the principle and the clinical applicability was proven by another independent group. For me, it was a breakthrough for implant treatment. At that time, you, you are maxillofacial surgeon, yeah. you are a medical doctor. Yeah. And did you add contact with the dentist, the dental community, or it's your community as maxillofacial surgeon who were interested by this uh, new implantology, because I do remember I was at that time with Jean-Francois Tulane. That was something just unbelievable and nobody was uh, were aware. Uh, uh, the the Brandemar group um, uh, uh, gave the information very slowly to uh, chosen groups and team. Uh, that was difficult even to go in, in Sweden to get the, uh, the training. How did, did you were aware about this uh, new, new uh, treatment? You know, I interrupted my surgical training uh, for one year to, to work in prosthetic dentistry. Okay. That was a very important part of my training because it, it was easier to find a connection in between, let's say, in between surgeons and dentists, because it's a totally different uh, way of thinking. And uh, that was important for me. You know, during the Toronto Ossia Integration Conference, um, Zab was in the position to invite uh, most of, or many of the uh, surgical groups in the United States. Let's say, uh, I'm not sure, but approximately 50 or, or 60 percent of all um, surgical department, maxillofacial departments, uh, send a member to that conference. The reason for him was to make uh, the research work that has already been done public in a certain sense to the community, to the surgical community. I think that was an important step. In the, be in the beginning, as you mentioned, it, the Braunemark group was something like a closed shop. Yes. Yes. Yes, for sure. So it was very difficult to, <laughs> to go in in the shop. But uh, 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 Fritz, during, during your, your career, you have met and you have worked with um, a lot of um, people. Uh, do, do you have one person or one group, one or several people who have affected you the most? Well, first of all, um, I would like to, to mention uh, my mentor. My mentor was Professor Hausam. He was the head of the department 
uh, in those days at the University of Hanover. And uh, you know, he was a very strict person. Uh, he accompanied my clinical and scientific training and he was always, he was always thinking how to connect scientific training and clinical work. For him, it was an entity yes. that he encouraged my practical, surgical and scientific independence and he always challenged me and he was very demanding as to say but i'm very grateful for him to him uh, for that training he made it possible to find um, let's say to open a door to scientific based treatment during the toronto conference i came in close contact to pi Branemark and george saab and uh, we became friends afterwards. And I think these uh, three people, they influenced me very much in a positive way. Yes. What I noticed is you had a mentor, a very strong mentor. And um, I think that that is so important to have someone who got you at the beginning and give you the, the foundation of the, your attitude based on knowledge, rigor, science, ethics. It's a, that's a gift you, you had with your, your professor, your mentor. That was a gift, eh? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yes, I'm very proud of it. And uh, uh, during all this, all, all this time, you have uh, uh, lectures, a lot, you have given um, a conference and uh, seminars all around the world, I, I guess. And um, do you remember one specific meeting or one specific lectures you have given and was very important for you because of topic or because of the people in front of you or, or because uh, that was your first lectures? I don't know. Do, do you remember? Well, uh, for me, I want to say it again. The Toronto conference was yeah. a very important aspect for my further development and then there has been well there are so many meetings i i, I would not say this is a very important but the influence uh, of the discussions of during the toronto Aussie integration conference and they had a very important impact on me Yes, the, the new generation cannot imagine the enthusiasm we had at the time. That yeah. was just unbelievable. The work the Swedish group has provided to, to the community and they have 15 years of uh, analyzed for, I, I remember 4,000 uh, uh, implants, uh, consecutive implants and all the data they have measured the, the bone loss around all those implants, etc. That was just amazing. That was, uh, as you say, uh, a new world, and uh, yes. and be part of this was uh, was very exciting. But I also remember in France, for example, our Conseil de l'Ordre uh, was not very happy with this uh, new implant because they didn't know that was very serious, and they said, "Okay, we had a problem with the old implant therapy." And we don't want to start again the same um, problems for patient. But uh, finally, step by step, every everyone has realized that was just unbelievable. So, but, and, but uh, not, yes, please. It was not so easy to overcome, let's, let's say, that kind of old thinking. Yes. There were enough examples of disasters during treatment oh, yeah. and after treatment. Uh, and uh, I think it was was a hard work to overcome that problem. Can I give you an example? Yes, please. Uh, you know, in the beginning, let's say in the in the eighties, uh, we focused on on treatment of the severe atrophic jaw on, and on tumor patients on reconstructions in tumor patients. And um, one aspect was in those days. Uh, that um, 
when we when we grafted bone or tetanus bone for an augmentation or for a reconstruction, we always had the problem of uh, bone resorption. And the resorption of the transferred bone uh, was to that extent that after one to three years, uh, the total bone was resorbed. Mm -hmm. It has been transferred before. So it was uh, the possibility we saw by using implants to overcome that pro problem in that way that due to the implants, it, was, it became possible that uh, the transferred bone, after it had been integrated into the uh, recipient side, uh, implants could be loaded in a normal physical, uh, physical way that resorption became more or less predictable or was much lesser than beforehand, before we mm. had implants. So that, that was again a very important aspect that implants can overcome to a certain extent bone resorption. Okay. Uh, it means that you you have used the implant not only for the processes but also to stimulate your graft and to limitate or avoid the resorption. Yes. Yes, that was a concept. Yes, and just a comma um, uh, with a new technology digitalization. I have seen uh, some colleagues who propose a superior story implant. And they claim that these new superior implants are very efficient because they are done by uh, 3D printing uh, machines. What do you think about this uh, approach? Uh, I'm a little bit surprised, but uh, maybe I'm too old. Yeah, maybe, maybe I'm too old too. <laughs> Anyhow, um, I have seen uh, many disasters after superior implant treatment no resorption infection of the whole mandible or maxilla yes and uh, yes I, I i will not not say it it will not work but the colleagues who uh, likes that kind of treatment they have to to prove it in a scientific based manner otherwise uh, a new concept cannot be accepted Yes, it's yes, and it's a... up to my knowledge. I haven't seen, uh, let's say, uh, really, let's really good publications in that field. Mm. Yes, I, I fully agree. And uh, the biological principles of ocean integration is the same. Whatever the way you build up your frame, metallic framework by, with a machine or or by by. Uh, uh, with the 3D printing, it's not uh, the issue. So I, I close the comma because I don't want to be too provocative in this uh, podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I, I, I know you and I know that uh, the science must be always behind any any uh, proposal of improvements in, uh, in science, in medicine. Oh, yes. And... Uh, uh, Preparing this uh, podcast, I went to PubMed, and PubMed is uh, where the, all the scientific uh, articles are um, stored. And I typed type your name, Fritz uh, Friedrich Neukamp, and I found 329 articles that you are authors or co-authors. And uh, what is surprising is the diversity of the review in which you have published this range from uh, very well-known dental journals, as, uh, such as a clinical oral implant research, but also uh, some journal of cancer, special for cancer review or maxillofacial surgery. How did you do? You did you stay alert uh, on so many different topics? Because you have a, a big diversity between uh, implant therapy, bone graft, and uh, uh, some uh, cancer. And uh, it's the different community of uh, uh, thinking also. 
how uh, that that was a um, uh, huge of work for you to be able I, to publish with a different uh, reviews. But it's, yeah, the topics are, are to a certain extent pretty close. Uh, but coming back to my training in Hanover, I mentioned my mentor, Hausam, a strong person, a demanding person. Uh, and I learned the lesson that science is always the background for our treatment, for clinical applications and so on. And uh, during my training in Hanover, I worked in two different scientific work groups he has created, he created. And um, that, let's say, that structure, how to run a department, I copied to a certain extent when I was elected here in Erlangen. And uh, we had uh, four scientific working groups. There were different topics, for example, reconstruction procedures, the bone and soft tissue, artificial materials, and guided tissue regeneration, and others. And you know, the discussions and the cooperation cooperation in the different working groups. I always attended these working groups and teams. Uh, for me, it was, it was a pleasure to work with the young colleagues and uh, it always resulted in the gain of my personal knowledge. And out of these scientific working groups, and we are, we have been very proud of it, we were able to publish our results in high-ranking journals. And, you know, uh, I think it was one of my privileges I had during my university activities that I had the time, the possibility, and the facilities to work in these scientific, in our scientific groups. And, you know, in addition, it's always a possibility to keep you young. Because yes. young colleagues are demanding and uh, you, you are in the position to, to be informed uh, in, in different parts of our specialty. With your young colleagues, do you wear an, a nice boss or a rose one? Well, uh, uh, to be honest, I didn't ask them. But to maybe give you an ex explanation, all the senior fellows um, who were trained in, in our department, we, we are even today in a very close contact. Yeah. Maybe that gives an answer too. <laughs> I, I, I knew the, the answer better <laughs> because I know you uh, very well. Uh, another provocative question, and uh, you have operated a lot of patients after cancer and that uh, in the maxillofacial surgery is that a very difficult uh, treatment, not only technically speaking, but also in a human uh, being because when you remove the half of the jaw of the patient, etc., it's a it's a really dramatic uh, surgery for a patient. And but during the meeting, sometimes you have seen some uh, uh, the colleagues talking as about the papilla, 0.3 millimeters more or less of papilla after treatment, etc. Uh, what do you thought about this? Uh, uh, fight about 0.3 millimeter of papilla while you were concerned with a patient with a uh, huge deformities. Well, uh, <clears throat> in surgery, uh, there are different specialties, you know, mm. and three millimeter for a neurosurgeon is quite a lot. Yeah. So it's not the millimeter that is important. It is the way how to handle a problem. Mm -hmm. so, uh, just, uh, well, uh, you know, uh, when we 
treated patients in the 80s and 90s, we, we had some, some options, saying uh, grafting of tetralis soft tissue and bone. And we had a, a, a high donor site morbidity in those days. Mm. And then a new technique arrived on the scene. It was destruction osteogenesis. Mm. And, uh, with the advantage that there was no more donor site mortality and morbidity and uh, the advantage of, of generating heart and soft tissue. Yeah, it was the first, let's say, uh, technique of tissue regeneration we used to, to a wider extent. Um, it was therefore when the technique of tissue regeneration occurred in dentistry and in other fields, uh, we realized that they were ideal to build up further tissue defects after extensive reconstructions without major stress for the patient. And, and if you uh, look into the scene, today regenerative procedures are manifold used, for example, in orthopedics for bone regeneration and cartilage regeneration and so on. And for sure in wound care for the treatment of open non-healing skin, skin wounds. And uh, I'm convinced that we are only at the beginning of further, further application possibilities in different specialties on the base of tissue regeneration. So, uh, you know, in the beginning, everyone is uh, arguing it may not function, but we have to, to work in that field and in these techniques, and then they are useful and helpful for the patient. Edward, um, you, you are in, uh, one of the uh, member of the, the founder of the Osteology Foundation. And uh, the first time your colleague uh, seen you using bottles of uh, material, foreign material to uh, build up the, the bone, uh, probably they were a little bit surprised because for the, in the maxillofacial surgery, the bone is uh, the golden standard. And uh, I, I understand that the distraction osteogenesis could be and um, some something parallel to your your habitual uh, work, but using substitutes to uh, grow the bone. The how, how do you do you start to use these materials in your in your practice? Well. I first used it in, in, in my animal research work. Okay. You know, um, in the beginning of the 80s, as I mentioned it already, um, I worked for my thesis. And uh, during the thesis, we, we grafted and transferred mortagenous bone blocks and compared the results uh, to bone different bone graft materials. So already in the beginning of my career, I, I tried to, uh, to overcome some of the problems of these uh, foreign body materials. So it, it was already in my mind to use them. On the other hand, you have to, to, to think about, uh, I, I would like to mention neurosurgery, for example. Uh, there were defects in the skull and they always, even in the 60s and 50s, they used foreign body material, metals or, or other materials to cover these defects. Yes. So it's, uh, it, it's not in that way that surgeons only used bone graft or tetanus bone grafts. They, try to use foreign body materials too. But there was a, uh, there's a difference. Um, in most of the surgical disciplines, uh, the foreign body material is covered by a thick layer of soft tissue, mm. skin, fat, muscles, and so on. 
And that is the difference. There's a big difference, therefore, uh, if you compare uh, for or if you want to use for body materials in the maxillofacial regions, uh, there are only, let's say, thin soft tissue layers. And uh, when it comes to the oral cavity, it's only a very thin layer of mucosa that's covering the bony structure. Uh, so there are different problems. Well, I think it, it has been proven that, um, let's say, bone substitutes are one of the possibilities we have today. There are many open questions, mm -hmm. for sure, but I'm convinced the way will follow that line. We have to avoid demanding surgical techniques techniques with a high bone donor site morbidity. And for that reason, I'm convinced that sooner or later, maybe in 10, 20 years, uh, it will become more common to use these bone substitutes. Okay, because you, you mentioned that uh, the bone regeneration, the tissue regeneration is used in other uh, field of uh, um, surgical activities as uh, uh, in orthopedic surgery for cartilage or bone, etc. But in, in our specialty in the mouth, yeah, do you think that we have some improvement to come again or now it's done and uh, we have used to open the bottle, put in a defect a cover with some uh, resorbable or non-resorbable membrane and uh, that's it, it's, uh, it's over. You think that we can improve again this technique? Well, first of all, uh, I think uh, tissue engineering and tissue regeneration has a great potential for development. Uh, because these techniques have uh, several advantages, potential to regenerate bone, cartilage, skin, mucosa, and so on, with a natural form and function. Uh, but it's important to consider when developing new tissue regeneration techniques, uh, there is the question about costs of the equipment or therapy under development. Today, many complex therapies will be limited to medicine for disease treatment because they are expensive, expensive, they are very demanding, and therefore, I think uh, they are limited, they will be limited to, to, to that field. Therefore, there, but your question is, are there uh, additional improvements in the oral cavity for the concept of tissue regeneration? Well, uh, maybe, maybe there is a possibility to use, let's say, a, a, a bundle of growth factors that can perhaps lead to, to an improvement, but I'm in doubt because uh, not only uh, the costs are a limiting factor, but also the limited improvements in the treatment outcomes so far. Uh, they are not conclusively clarified to date. And I think that is a problem. Yes, because we, everybody expects uh, the, the magic product you have just to put on the defect and uh, you cover more or less and that's it. Uh, we have no problem, uh, no, no resorption. You know, Frank, uh, we have had the discussion with BNP. Many people were fond of it, but it's only one aspect of the healing process that perhaps can be accelerated also or anything else. But it's a complex system 
the healing process. Uh, that's I think that is the problem, and that's why I think uh, these complex therapies they are very cost intensive, and that's the reason why I think uh, they they cannot be accept, uh, uh, accepted to to let's say for for the augmentation of three millimeter of papilla. Mm. <laughs> Yes, yes, I, I understand. Yes, yes, I I have seen a lecture uh, some years ago, and the speakers. Unfortunately, I don't remember his name, and uh, I'm sorry for him. Uh, uh, he said that they, for what we know today so far, the the biological um, healing of the bone requires two thousand and five hundred different elements and connections. And the BMP, for example, play a role only on 10 or 20 of these uh, different um, uh, <laughs> procedures. And that is uh, it's so complex to regenerate the bone that uh, today it's um, just thinking uh, that the BMP will uh, change the world is uh, maybe uh, a dream. Yeah. Just a dream. It's too complex. Yeah. There are but, too but, many. Yes. But I, I have seen on, uh, um, on PubMed that you have uh, participated of different articles on uh, LPRF. It's uh, a new approach. It's not very new because the first time that was uh, marks in a long, long time ago. And then uh, you have Shukrun and then you have um, Markurinen who has worked on that uh, uh, a new approach. And uh, what do you think about the LPRF? Because we, are, we, we see more and more practitioners promoting this uh, technique, both for the bone regeneration and for soft tissue healing. Uh, what do you think about this LPRF? Well, um, yes, we worked in that field. Yes. Um, perhaps I can give some introductory um, information. Uh, platelet concentrates can be obtained from patient's blood. Everyone knows it is a possibility for share side treatment, if you want to say it in that way. And <clears throat> platelet concentrates are rich in platelets, growth factors, and cytokines. And we can differentiate, uh, let's say, four main categories that can be used depending on uh, the leukocyte content and fibrin architecture. Uh, in the very beginning, people used pure platelet-rich plasma. Anituta, for example, and we used it too. Then there is a possibility for leukocyte and plasma-rich plasma, LPRP, for example, or APCCS. And then uh, there are, is a possibility of pure platelet rich fibrin, P, PRF, for example, and leukocyte platelet rich fibrin, LPRF. The, these main categories exist up to date. Uh, leukocyte platelet rich fibrin enhance enhances immune function and antibacterial potential, uh, but has, plays also an essential role in wound healing. That's the background. You, you mentioned Quirinen. Quirinen okay. uh, uh, published in 2018 on uh, LPRF for increasing the width of keratinized mucosa around implants in a split mouse design in eight patients, in eight patients. He compared three principal grafts on one side and LPRF membranes on the other side. And he evaluated the soft tissue situation pre-op 
and six months later. There was an increase by the two techniques in, let's say, in, in buckled lingual width. And um, it was, the, the increase was a little bit higher in the LPRF group, a little bit. An extra gain of approximately one millimeter. However, he reported shrinking of the widened areas after six months was approximately 30% on the test side, also LPR, um, LPRF, and about 20% at the control side. So there are no more data. Mm. So you never know when will the shrinkage end. So he, he concluded in that study uh, that PIF can, can increase the width of, uh, of this uh, soft tissue situation around implants. But what's about shrinkage in Pelora? Uh, last year, um, uh, a paper, a systematic review was published by Dragonas and co-workers. And um, they evaluated uh, the effects of LPRF in, in different interoral bone grafting procedures. They used extraction sockets and they, uh, they, they saw uh, that there was a modest beneficial effect by decreasing algorithmic remodeling and so on. And when they used LPRF in maxillary sinus augmentation, there was no favorable outcome. Mm. And in augmentation procedures, um, that couldn't be assessed because up for them, there was only one study available. So if, if we put these data together, um, up to now, there is no real benefit proven. Our conclusion from our work was in those days uh, that it can reduce post-op pain significantly. That is an important fact. Mm. Um, and perhaps it can improve bone healing and soft tissue healing, but it's not proven. In the mouse, because yeah. in, in, the uh, in dermatology, the, the Pinto group has yeah. published some unbelievable results. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. That, that's true, but that yeah. is uh, uh, that skin. And uh, these are these wound healing problems that can become to certain overcome uh, by, by this treatment. Yes, and yes. Yes, yes, it's a good point. Yes. It. So, so the bone is important. They substitute help us a lot um, in the, for the tissue regeneration. And these um, biologics, we have to wait, still wait for more and more information and science to be sure that we can, uh, we, the, that, that will improve or help our treatment for the patient. You know, Frank, in the very beginning, you mentioned implants have been, had, in the 60s and 70s, had been, let's say, a disaster. Yes. Because there was no scientific background. Mm. I think uh, if we look for new techniques, uh, we, we shouldn't forget that there's always a need for breakthrough before breakthrough can happen, that there is a proven concept by evaluation. And we shouldn't forget our lesson. Yes, but unfortunately, we have less and less um, studies comparing different techniques with a large cohort and uh, a large follow-up. 
And now more and more the science is um, displayed by the social networks. Yes. And it's yeah. uh, difficult for a new generation because uh, how you can assess that uh, the, a, new, a new proposal is uh, really valid for, mm. for the patient because um, if, you, if, if it's difficult to find the information. Okay. And talk, talk, talking about the new generation, what, what could be your advice for practitioners who start the practice and who want to work in a field of uh, implants and uh, perio and, and tissue regeneration? What could be your advice for him uh, or uh, her? Can, can I add? Please. News can be sometimes fake news. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes, on social media, it's just amazing. Just amazing. <laughs> and, uh, and we have to say to the people, please be careful, be careful. It's not because the photo is nice that uh, you have the reality uh, for sure. But uh, maybe we are too old, Fritz. <laughs> yeah, it's it's uh, always difficult to 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 make recommendations. <clears throat> Anyhow, for me, again, is it essential to combine science and practice? And uh, I think young colleagues need to be introduced to science and to practice. This requires a mentor. They accompany the training part, they promote and they demand. Therefore, uh, when I, I'm asked, uh, uh, what can I recommend? I think very important is in the beginning of the training process to choose an institution, let's say with an hopefully interdisciplinary working group. Um, then you have the possibility to learn to work scientifically, to learn to discuss, to learn to publish. And you, you also can learn to evaluate clinical studies and your own practical work critically to develop evidence-based treatment concepts. And it is important, the mentorship is important to learn a positive culture of debate and a positive failure culture. Therefore, I think the group you are working, which you are working together, is the most important step during training. Okay, if, if I can resume, ideally, you want to start to work in regenerative procedures, you have to choose a multidisciplinary group, different aspects, different approaches, clinical approaches, and scientific, both all, all together. You must be critical, mm -hmm. always thinking what what is a problem. Always to re restart to thinking about the the problem, the solutions, etc. You need a good mentor. The mentorship is important. That is what we have mentioned at the beginning of this interview. And uh, fortunately, if you have a mentor, you are lucky. And we have also to talk about the failures the problems, the complications, not only the success, because it's uh, it, yeah, success is just a part of the practice. Unfortunately, of oh, that's the life, we have also uh, failures. And uh, if we can put all these things together in a, a bowl, we can have a good mixture to start our life, uh, professional life. So I, I'm, now it's time to, to conclude this uh, interview. And uh, uh, Fritz, it's, uh, I know him not very, very well. We, we know each other for maybe 20 years. And we fortunately, we had the chance to work, uh, especially in an EO uh, group. And uh, I just would like to, 
say something personal about Fritz. Uh, uh, when I, I, we were together at the EO board, uh, sometimes I, I believed to have a very great idea and was very exciting. And I tried to explain uh, my, my idea. And very often Fritz, uh, very, very calmly, very uh, cool. Hey, oh, Frank, it's a very nice idea. Thank you very much. In another end, and <laughs> when he said in another end, I knew that that was <laughs> finished for me. Fritz had this possibility, this uh, capacity to have an overview of the problem. And uh, he is a, is a very smart person, very elegant person. Uh, as we say in English, a Renaissance uh, person. And uh, uh, that was a privilege for me to. Uh, to be able to work and to uh, be also a friend with Fritz Neukam, a very nice person uh, involved and with a lot of uh, ethics, a lot of uh, science and uh, in a good person. That's it. Fritz, I'm sure you don't want to add something. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm you, you don't like this. You don't like this because that was very nice. I hope that you have enjoyed this discussion we had with Professor Frederick Snoykam, one of the pioneers of the tissue regeneration and one of the founding member of the Ostology Foundation. Next time in uh, another podcast, you will discover other uh, pioneer of this uh, field of activity. Thank you very much for listening. That was a pleasure for, for us to share with you some of our, our past. Thank you. Au revoir.